You are now listening to the Life in Football podcast. Check out the new website, lifeinfootball.com. Once again, the website is lifeinfootball.com. Thanks for listening. This is a new day to live your life. This is a new day to try to get right. This is a new day to get on track. Yeah, that's life in football. This is a new day to live your life. This is a new day to try to get right. This is a new day to get on track. Yeah, that's life in football. It's life in football. We are life in football. Welcome to the Life in Football podcast, baby. I'm your host, Mike Fee. And this is your co-host, Cole Moore. You know we love in life and enjoying football. We got a legendary player from the Bethune Cookman Wildcats on today. And he's a hometown hero as well. And I played football with him in high school. He goes by the name of Philip Kirkland. And let me tell y'all something, man. This is a guy I think is underrated for us in the gastric kind of history book. I see him as a legend. Let me tell y'all something. This guy... Philip Kirkland, when he first popped up on the scene, where well, we really recognized he was a top-notch bowler. And this for all the young athletes out there. You got to stay consistent. We out there in the scrimmage one day, and he tearing up the scene. Now, my senior year, our practices were like a game. So he out there balling on the first team defense. And he was in the 10th grade, y'all. So that's a whole lot. Philip Kirkland also ran track. He was a top-notch sprinter. He ran track at high school. He graduated from East Gaston, so he was in that transition from Shanks to East Gaston. He ran track, was a sprinter, getting up out of there. He also was a top-notch bowler with them Wildcats at bethune Cupman. He wore number 82, played for Coach Shine, and he did his thing. Also, he had an opportunity with the New York Jets. Man, I got so much in store for y'all today. But without further ado, I'm going to quit talking and let Simo bring him on. How you doing, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, man. Can't complain. Appreciate it for having me on the show. Hey, man, it's a blessing to have you on, man. So I'm going to get right with it, man. How was it playing with old Mike Figs in high school? <laughs> Well, playing with Mike Fig, man, like he said, uh, like I tell everybody else, my 10th grade year was kind of different from everybody else because I didn't play my ninth grade year. Uh, all my classmates played ninth grade. I sat out because I was, a, you know, a freshman. Uh, you know, I was a nerd, too, so I, like, I got to see how this thing go. I got to get these A's first, and then I go out there in the spring. So going into spring and stuff like that, 10th grade, uh, just going out there to play football with these boys. I already had the mindset that I'm not playing JV. So I, I already had a mission. And we practiced on the top, you know, by the football field. And they practiced in the bottom. We called through the bushes and all this other stuff. Had a old practice field down there in the bottom. So, you know, you should watch them play, practice and stuff. Like you said, grown men, you know, that Sad Fisher, Cody Fad, John, these, these boys, like, grown men. This is my first time, like, you know, seeing, like, this kind of action, you know what I'm saying? Like face to face, like yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, like I said, yeah, Mike Fig. You had uh, uh, goddamn gone. Uh, 
uh, Amp Battles. Said, said, said official Amp mm-hmm. Battles. His brother Robert Battles. Uh, Meat Horn. Meat Horn. These boys, I'm telling you, these boys, like, when I tell you lay in the wood, oh, my God. It's, it was crazy. So, I mean, I wasn't nervous going with them, but practicing with them was like every day. Like you said, it was a, it was a football game. Like, a lot of trash talking. You know, Meat Horn coming down, laying the wood from safety. You know, you got Mike Fig. You know, all these, like, and these boys fast. I mean, it's dust shooting up everywhere. It's like the wild, wild west down there. I'm just like, like, man, I'm like the youngest person down here. Everybody was like juniors, seniors. I was like, these boys, these boys hungry. These boys trying to get something. I don't know what I just stepped myself into, but I can't wait to get my hands on some of this. So, you know, this action. It's live. Like, if I can survive here, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can survive anywhere. So, that was kind of atmosphere it was down there in the hole with them boys, man. It was fun. It was a lot of intensity. You know, a lot of hard-nosed football going on. You know, it was like Sandlot football with pads. That's how I seen it. Out there getting so, yeah. Now, yeah, man. when did you know that you was D1? Like, man, I'm D1. I could play at this level, man. I, I know I'm going to get there. I'm going to sign the scholarship and do my thing. When did you figure that out? Man. So my approach was a little different. Like I said, I didn't play my ninth grade yet. I sat out because, you know, coming up, I was a nerd. So I already knew I was going to do engineering anyway. So football wasn't like a first priority in line. It, I kind of started doing it because, you know, getting off the bus, my friends, they was going playing sports and stuff. So at the rec, I didn't have nobody to come home and play with. So I was like, where everybody at? Everybody at the recreation department playing t-ball, baseball, football, basketball, all these other things. So I just jumped in there. I knew these guys because I played with them in Sandlot. So I was like, I can do this too. So go out there and play with them just to have fun, have something to do. And to be honest, I didn't even think about athletic scholarship. It never dawned on me that you could even get an athletic scholarship because I was in the mindset because I was on the track of getting an academic scholarship. So I was always good. Like That's why I was like always on top of my grades, making all A's and stuff like that because I ended up graduating with a 4.12 GPA. Made a 27 on the ACT my senior year and made 226 my junior year. So I would say I could have went anywhere academically that I wanted. But the thing was, when I was I got on board with them boys down at on varsity at Shanks, you know, these, you know, I see Cody and all these boys, like we have athletes everywhere. Like everybody is like primed to try to get uh scholarship. Then you have Mickey Baker, he was a junior and everybody had eyes on him and stuff too. So I was like, man, I didn't even know to after Cody end up signing the Florida State and all uh, you got Mike Fear, Alabama and all this other stuff and everybody else, you know, went off and did their thing. I was like, man, you get it. I was kind of dumbfounded. I was like, oh, it makes sense. That's all these boys playing all these, you know, at UM and Florida State. I was like, I never I never knew that, you know, maybe they just got a football scholarship. They didn't get an academic scholarship. They got a football scholarship. So as I started playing, I already knew I had the confidence that, okay, I can play. So going into, like I said, spring football and playing against the uh, number one defense at uh, Shanks at the time, I, I had no fear, you know, going against them boys. Like, I've I seen them all the time. They're human, and I felt I was good in my skin and understood how to play ball, and I just felt like I could play. I was just as good as Cody outside of the experience. I can catch like him. He was a little faster than me at the time. But other than that, I felt like, I was on his le- like a notch below his level, so I was like, "Okay, I can, I can do this too." So, you know, I just kept at it. You know, I kept my grades up because, you know, like I said, football wasn't my ultimate thing. It was fun to do. It allowed me to get my aggressive side out, my competitive nature out, and stuff like that. So, up until like my senior year, um, 
that came around. I went to uh, Auburn football camp with, uh, hosted by Tommy Tuberville, uh the year that they came off their undefeated year with Cadillac Williams, Ronnie Brown, all these boys, Anthony Mitz, Jason Campbell had like five or six first rounders that year. So they offered, they had a, you know, they had a scholarship for me, uh, Alabama and Auburn, they offered me a, a scholarship to play cornerback. Um, so, you know, I always knew I can play sports. That was never a thing like I can play a sport, but the thing that dawned on me was, okay, I'd go to this PWI, but then I kind of like the day before my signing day, I was looking at it as, okay, what, what makes these PWIs great? And, you know, I looked at the teams, you know, the landscape, the Miamis, the Ohio States, USC's, you know, seeing all them and come to the realization, like, you know, seven players, like D1 players, and it was, you know, there's black, you know, black athletes come from small places like mine, you know, uh, some coming from like single family homes. So I'm like, okay, that's why they look so good because athletes like us go there. So I was like, let me take my talents to a HBCU. So I ended up going to Bethune-Cookman, and that was all she wrote. Now, Phil, I always wonder how you ended up at Bethune-Cookman, <laughs> man. So that was a good breakdown because, y'all, I'm telling y'all, man, this guy exploded on the scene. And for the people who going to hear this and might may think, oh, he was saying he was right behind Cody because a lot of people going to know Dakota mm-hmm. Fair because he played at Florida State. Yeah. I'm going to speak for him. He not lying. He was right up on him, really, because we got to see him. Like, at first, boom, he dropping a few passes here and there. And out of nowhere, it's like he grew. Like, he grew up to a monster. He came in because, like, you get to see the pattern of people and you get to see them grow at the same time when you're playing this game of football. So, as when Phillip first come in, we see him. And I'm, te- I'm telling you, it was a constant growth into the person he became for balling out of control. And I'm telling y'all, we seen it, like, in it live in action. And he ain't lying, because we were trying to put that beam <laughs> and put that hat on that head. And, and I'm telling you, he grew up right in front of our face, and he was out there balling right along with us. And, I mean, he was somebody our team we could count on. Now, Philip, let's get into you know, your life story, man, and kind of let the people know your background because a lot of a lot of fathers out here, you know, affect lives and do things for their kids. But let me tell y'all something, man. This, this man's daddy was at all the practices. His daddy was like a legend for just always being around the game of football. He still is to this day. I, yep. I see him out there on FAMU sideline. Yep. So... Philip, just kind of break it down to everybody, like how it was for you growing up and your family. Man, so I came from a two-parent household. Uh, you know, my dad did all the work. You know, he worked um, a long time until he got his accident, like my fourth grade year. My mom, she didn't work up until this time. Uh, so he basically was the sole um, breadwinner of the house. Uh, my mom, she dropped out in the 10th grade. So she ended up getting her GED night school while I was in elementary school. I just remember her getting on that bus to go out there to, uh, I think it was GTI or something like that uh, at the time. But she used to get on that bus and go get her night, uh, go get her night school uh, and finally got her GED and stuff like that. So she started working. Uh, but my daddy was always in record. Like he was like Coach Hollywood is what they called him. Like he was already. 
he had the championships of recreation and stuff like that, back-to-back championships uh, with the midget lead uh, down in recreation down at uh, Quincy. And just having him and being around him before I even played football recreation-wise, just watching him going to the practices with uh, Burt and all those boys. I mean, I actually got a chance to see y'all out there too. So I've seen a lot of people, my run, God bless his soul. Like I've seen all these guys coming up. You know, I knew about Cody, you know, just by going out there and watching these guys play. Uh, so he was always a coach. So he football, uh, the Pop Warner League, which is like the young kids. I think it was, went up to about 10 or 11. So that's the first time I started playing. So up in re- recreation, I played quarterback, and he was my coach uh, my second year when I went to the Midget League. That was my seventh grade year. So he was my coach. I played quarterback up until this time. And in my eighth grade year, I ended up going to play at Carter Penmore with uh, Coach Green. Uh, I went out there kind of late. So, you know, he was asking me, you know, what position he wanted me to, you know, wanted me to play. And he was like, you know, well, I need a tight end because all my passes go to the tight end and stuff like that. I'm like, listen, I can play whatever you want me to play. So I went from the conversion of quarterback to the tight end, hand in the dirt, then Side out, you know, my daddy, he's still coaching me. The worst thing ever, you know, having your dad coach you as an athlete, you know, taking you out early mornings, practicing and, you know, and teaching you all the, you know, all the footwork drills and, you know, catching the ball. You know, he's like, he's not your dad no more. He's your coach type thing. The hardest thing ever to have, you know, come home, getting in arguments. My mom has to, you know, oh, y'all calm down. You know, it's practice. Y'all arguing about practice and stuff like that. So, it was like a push and pull type thing relationship, but you know, I love him to death for it. And even when I, you know, ended up going to Shanks East Gas and he was still there coaching. Um, even to this day, uh, he always nagged me about, you know, why I didn't never go back to even try to play uh professionally when I, you know, I just called it quits, you know, to start doing my engineering thing. So he was always a constant pillar, like Mike Pierce said. He was always at all the games, you know, no matter what, he was there. Uh, he never really cheered. You know, I look at the sideline, he never was one of those co- those uh, parents that's like, up, oh, that's my son. And, you know, he's just quiet. You just look at him, he's just quiet and stuff like that. So it was just one of those things where he was a silent killer. And to this day, he's still coaching. He's on the sideline with, uh, with um, FAMU coaching with the rest of everybody. So it's all good. Now, Philip. I got to know, how was it, man, for you playing at Bethune-Cookman on the cold shine and, you know, that your whole experience there, man? How how was it for you? Because I'm going to tell you something. I was at one of your games one time. Y'all was playing the classic. Mm-hmm. See, for anybody who may not know, Alabama State, we got something called the Turkey Day Classic, mm-hmm. which is Thanksgiving weekend. So that week before, that weekend, they give us that weekend off. So I would come home and go down and watch the Florida Classic. And so, man, I'm down there watching the Classic. I think that was uh, 2007, 2007. Mm-hmm. And I get to see you, you know, just kind of being out there on the field. But, man, it just was so, I was so proud to just see you, you know, just out there even walking around and just seeing you down there on that field, man. So how was that for you playing at Bethune-Cookman? Man, it was kind of uh, – it was different. Uh, I mean, outside the fact that, you know, I didn't ever get 
outside of my visits to these PWIs, I didn't get a chance to like interact with them on the practice and going to school level. But at Cookman, you know, it was close knit community to HBCU. Um, so everything that comes with HBCU with the camaraderie, the rivalry games, like you said, the Florida Classic, you know, you got the Howard games, all this other stuff. So, you know, it's a, it's a constant, you know, clout, you know, constant battle, you know, type thing. So, I mean, to be honest, when I first got there, you know, Coach White, him and himself, like his character, he's like the best motivator ever. Like I never ran into a person that can motivate you. Like, I mean, literally can get you to run through a wall with just his speeches alone. And just like the way he carried himself, he's always like you've seen him dressed up, always classy. He was like that at practice, you know. Man, I I gotta give you a story. So one day we was at practice, and you know, after practice, you know, the coach talked to you and stuff like that as a team before we take a prayer and stuff like that before we get out of there and break it down. He's talking, and he's standing in an ant bed, and he used to always wear like these snake these snakeskin uh, cowboy boots or uh, alligator cowboy boots, like, you know. So he's standing in this ant pile, you know, we're like, hey, man, hey, coach, you standing in the ant pile, and he look at him, and the ants is all on his boot. He ain't even move. He's just like, oh, they ain't going to do nothing tomorrow. You see these you see these gators on? Yeah, they'll go ahead and eat them ants. He just, stand, he just stood in the ants, like, no problem. Like, he was that kind of person, like, his enthusiasm, like, he was just – the funniest thing ever with his practices down at Daytona Beach was the worst type of practices. Like, after every practice, full gear or whatever we had, we ran sprints. We ran 40-yard sprints. Uh, they'll start off with 10s and 20s and 30s and 40s. Sometimes we'll go longer. And a lot of people used to always say, oh, yeah, it's feel like we run track. We're not on the football team because his thing was you got to be in better shape than anybody else because we're going to run and run and run again. So, on the average, we used to run like 60 to 80 40-yard sprints, and that's just the 40-yard sprints. It's not even including the 10s, the 20s, and the 30s, full gear. One time, we ended up breaking the record for our team. We ended up running, uh, as a whole, each each, uh, group, we ended up running at least 140-yard sprints. That's not even including the ones that uh, turned into suicide because of either somebody was walking or he felt like the lack of effort was there. But my freshman year, I tell anybody, that was my roughest year. That rough, that was the roughest camp ever because now you actually playing with grownups, you know, seniors, stuff like that. They already know what to look forward to. And you come into camp and, you know, you run all these 40s. And now I'm like, yeah, I, should, I made the wrong decision. Like this, you know, all these 40s, because like, I'm, I'm in great shape. I ran track and I ran all day, but this kind of running was different, like – I literally, that camp, my freshman year camp, I thought about just quitting and just going to, you know, Ivy League school, taking my scholar- my academic scholarship somewhere because, you know, I was like, this, yeah, this can't be real. I can't be out here running. But outside of that, after I made it through, that was a great experience, you know. Sat on the bench for the first two years uh, because I sat behind this uh, guy, uh, Eric Weems. He was a long-term, uh, long-time NFL player. Uh, I think he played around like eight to nine seasons. Uh, with the Falcons most of his seasons, and he ended up going to the Pro Bowl with them. Then he went to Chicago and back to the Falcons and stuff like that. But um, uh, I was, you know, watching him, you know, play behind him for a long time. So there was a lot of frustration going in for those first two years. But after that, you know, I burst on the scene again, and, you know, it's fun. So it was like like my own home. I brought Quincy to Daytona Beach, and that was history. 
Now, you got me so intrigued on you weren't even studying football like that all the way pretty much going through because you already knew you wanted to be an engineer. So when did you know? Because that's great that you already knew in high school that you wanted to be an engineer. But when did you officially, I guess in high school you knew, but when did you truly, truly know that engineering was going to be your route in life? Well, so engineering, I made that decision like elementary school. I found out what engineering was. I'm like, oh, yeah, because first it was going to be architectural engineering. But then I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to do something with computers. I want to do computer or electronics, something like that, electrical. So high school, I ended up, end up making that final decision. I was in this guy, uh, Mr. Williams. Uh, he, talk, he taught an elective uh, called electronics. He taught elect, uh, electronics one and two. Um, and getting in there doing digital circuits and stuff like that, putting circuits together, learning Ohm's Law and all these different things. I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. You know, start doing a little programming with Mr. Grawl and stuff like that. It wasn't huge programming, but it was some programming. It's kind of like intriguing my mind more like, okay, yeah, elect- uh, electronic engineer or computer engineer, that's the route that I'm going to go. So once I go to college, like when I was looking for colleges to go to, I wasn't going to go to Cookman, but they had a computer engineering um, program. So I was like, okay, I looked up computer engineering. I was like, okay, I can use that. I can go to either electrical. I can go electronic. I can go but I go any route because it's like one of those fields where I can like basically uh, smoothly transition to any other type of engineering that I wanted. So even while at Cookman, I already knew like engineering is my, that's my thing. That's my A. Football is something that, you know, I could have got an academic scholarship to Cookman, but I was like, I want to just go. You can't get both. You have to get one or the other. Um, but I end up still getting uh, my Bright Future scholarship. Just couldn't get the full 100%. They end up giving me 70% of that. So being at Cookman, everybody on my team knew that, hey, this is a smart guy. So, you know, I used to help the uh, seniors and stuff out there. Their work and stuff like that, help tutoring them, even tutored some other people outside of sports, uh, things like that. So I was always, like, hell-bent on I'm going to be a software engineer and that's the path that I'm going to go on. But being a part of a team was my thing because it made me uh, interact and network with people. And I created these bonds that had never be broken, got friendships that last forever. Um, so that was just that. Like football was just a medium to express, you know, either the stress or uh, the aggression that I had at the time. That's how I used football. Football was kind of like my therapy. Now, with you having such a high GPA, was that you getting that GPA because you was dedicated and you wanted to make sure your grades were good enough to get in school the way you want to be getting in school? Or were you just always had it like that? You were just always that smart and really didn't have to study that much just to have those type of grades? Yeah, so the thing for me was I didn't really study. So I had to have, like, different ways of, like, I had different ways of learning things. Uh, so I was always competitive at my base. So, you know, I had Miranda Mack, I had Betty McKenna, Jeremy Ford, and all these other smart people from my area in, in my class that was making 4.0s and stuff like that. I was like, you know, why not compete with them? Because, uh, you know, at the time, elementary school, we went elementary together, then middle school. Uh, elementary school, I didn't play any sports. I played Sandlot, um, played some T-ball and stuff, then some baseball. But I was like, okay, I can only 
if I'm a play, if I'm gonna do anything, I'm gonna be good at it. If I'm in school, my dad always told me, "Well, while you're there, you might want to learn something." Since you're spending most of your day at school, you gotta learn something, I guess. So I took that to heart. So I ended up running to these people. So in the classroom, I took it as like a football field or any kind of competitive sport. I'm like, okay, you making A's, I can do that too. But how I'm gonna do it is gonna be different. How you do it? I'm not gonna go home and study all this stuff. I'm gonna just sit here and take in and absorb everything the teacher says. And I can regurgitate everything that they're doing and I can basically mimic what they're doing and I can do it on a test. And I slowly, and outside of that, I was intriguing. Like I was intrigued by different things too. So I also was one of those kids that was out here learning about, you know, astronomy and um, engineering. And I had these encyclopedias at the house that I used to write these research papers on like anything that intrigued me, biology, chemistry, I was the type to go ask Jeeves to find out random information. Or now, what you'll do now, you're like, you know, go Google it. I was doing that already. I was doing that on AOL, you know, AOL and ask Jeeves, Yahoo. I was just Googling all this information, just learning stuff that had nothing to do with what I was learning at the time. I was just like, oh, why does chemicals do such and such? Why is H2O, like all that stuff is like stuff that I was like, already getting information on so from the educational standpoint i was competitive as well i was like since i'm in this class and i don't have practice right now i might well compete with the smart people too because i wanted the the teachers to also look at me as not as more than an athlete like lebron say like i'm more than an athlete i always i already had that mentality because my dad had that mentality like he is, his teachers, Miss Ra and Miss Francis, they taught him in high school, and most of his teachers that taught him taught me before they retired. So they were like, oh, I talked to daddy. Oh, he played sport. Oh, your daddy was smart. He was a B student. I go, oh, well, I'm going to be better than them, so I'm going to be an A student. And that was the thing. So I was like, okay, I always found the chip. Just like, okay, I'm going to do this person. I always found something. Like, if it, if it was nothing, I'll make something. Kind of like Kobe, God bless his soul. I made it personal. I see they say that athletes ain't smart. I'm gonna I'm gonna prove them wrong. I'm gonna be smart and I'll be great on the football field at the same time. So I can sit in any room at any time. Somebody can talk about me like, well, Philip was a great student. But if I go sit here with my athletes, I'm like, oh yeah, man, you can't you can't stop it. He fast. He this and that. So I always wanted to be comfortable whatever room I sat in. No one can talk over my head about anything. If it's business, science, athletics, like. I just felt like I should be a part of any con- any conversation that you had. So that's that was the mindset. That was how I was able to keep the GPA. Like, my GPA was my thing. That was my, here you go, check this out. This is my holy grail. And by the way, I also play sports, and I'm pretty good at that, too. Philip, man, I love everything you're talking about right now. And that's how a lot of athletes actually should look at it, man. They should approach it for us getting their schoolwork and then focusing on athletics, man. And I'm so glad you did that. And you represented for Quincy, Florida very well. And you did your thing at an HBCU, which I did too. And my last two questions I'm going to bring to your attention. Now, the first question is, Phil, I'm kind of hating a little bit, man. (laughs) Y'all... Y'all, y'all done heard me on this podcast say plenty of times I went to Alabama State, which is the HBCU. But the best thing I ever heard, man, my first time at the Florida Classic, and basically that's my question I'm going to ask you, is how I was playing at the Florida Classic. But before you start, 
let me give my story. So I'm home. I'm home now on a break. This is my first time even at the Florida Classic. No, no, it wasn't my first time. It was my probably second time at the Florida Classic. Now, this time, the song hit me so different. I'm playing at Alabama State. Like I say, we play that next week, Turkey Day Classic. I'm down at the Florida Classic, but Thune Cookman rocking this song, man. Let's go. Let's go. Why can't Man, it sounded so good and how the crowd was saying it. I ain't going to lie, Phil. I was wishing that was me down there playing on the field, man. So how was that playing in the Florida Classic, too? Oh, man. So going from – because I listened to one of your podcasts. I remember you hit on this. So our Classic games, HBCU Classic games, are the equivalent of a PWI, uh, I guess, like one of their – a major school that they're going to play, like Miami, Florida State, or something like that. Um, some teams that rank, like Ohio State, Penn State, they play each other. They have, like, hundreds of thousands of people. So that's our equivalent of that capacity. We have 80,000-plus people in the Orange Bowl down in Orlando, Florida. Uh, just picture a stadium full of black people and a couple specks of white people in the stands. That's the classic. Now... Sprinkling two of the baddest bands in the land with the Martian Wildcats, the Martian One Hundred, because this is a show. It's this is a this is like a show. You got a they call it HBCU football is like you got two shows. You got the football game and the band uh, halftime show. So the battle of the football teams, battle of the bands. So coming into the classic, you know, you go out there, you're warming up, you know, you're looking at the stadium big, you know. People flying, you know, they're flooding in. You know, there's a couple thousand people in there. there ain't that many people because, you know, it's a party on the outside of the stadium, too. People out there eating food. You know, it's black people. You know, we grilling. We having a good time. So you can hear all the music, you know, all the, you know, all the frats and sororities doing their thing and stuff like that. So you go out, you know, you got your, you know, you out there warming up. The kickers out there, the special teams out there warming up. There's not that many people in the stands right now. You go back in the tunnel. Go back in the locker room. You're getting ready. You're getting your speeches and stuff like that. You come back out. The band's rocking. Next thing you know, like my first Florida Classic when I experienced, you walk out that tunnel, stomach just dropped because the, the it's loud. The beat, the the bands are battling each other, and it's like black people everywhere. Like. Black people everywhere. Nobody fighting in the stand. Cause you know you go to like a club. They say you go to a black person club. You gonna have some fighting and stuff like that. Nah, this is different kind of fighting. This the battle of the bands fighting, the football team fighting, the fraternities and sororities out here. They're stepping against each other. It's like a whole thing. It's a family reunion. You got the old heads from the '90s, the 2000s. They out here now. You know you got the current generation out here from the schools. It's thousand. It's eighty thousand plus people in the stadium. And there's thousands of people outside the stadium that's not in the game because they can't get in the game because it's so loud. But they're still out there having a good time. And that that experience alone is just like, it's like riveting. Like, it sends like chills through your spine. Like, the reason why I went to HBCU was because like athletes like myself with the GPA or the accolades or the high, you know, demand at these PWIs, just imagine our caliber of athletes going to back to those HBCUs, you know what I'm saying, and actually representing 
and putting all this stuff back on the map, kind of like how Dion when he got like a top 100 recruiting class, first time ever in HBCU history. Imagine like t- like top ESPN 100 players just like I'm committing to Howard, I'm committing to Jackson State, Alabama State. Imagine that kind of stuff. Imagine the revenue that kind of stuff come in. Like that was the vision. And when I went out there on that field, and you see 80,000 people in the stands. That can be HBCUs around the country. It's 107 HBCUs. Imagine every game having 70-plus thousand black people in the stands. 70,000 black people. You don't even got that many people at the PWIs like black people in the stands. Not that many, you know, because it's only so many tickets and so many students at that PWI that are actually black. Majority of the black people that you're going to see at these PWI football games are going to be on that football field on both sides of the field, either the visiting team and the home team. So walking out there on that field and just experiencing like the black excellence, that's like, it was great. It was amazing. I mean, I went trading for the world. Like that's my future. That is why like what I do at work with my programs, with the HBCUs to even get like the opportunities because it reached further than athletics it's like a professional thing. Like me going to HBCU and seeing what we have and potential that we have and the opportunities that we don't get. And I get to like a Fortune 500 place like Home Depot and having them directly go get interns and recruit directly from these HBCUs. And they have a program now set in stone that I help build at Home Depot to recruit these HBCU kids. Like my perspective that's the vision, like, from the football field, transition to professional. Like, okay, that's the pipeline I want to see. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the excitement that I get, just going to these HBCU games, the classics in general, and just seeing, like, the excitement and, you know, just all the fun. It's like, man, why we can't just have this kind of game every – why it have to be a classic? Why it just can't be a regular home game type thing? Why we can't get this atmosphere like this rolling? So – that's how that's you know that's how I felt going into hey 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 Philip man that, I'm talking about that was plenty said and it was amazing too because you gave some input on the actual scene and the feeling that you had because let me let y'all know people at the classic is straight a family event just like he said you really don't even need no security out there the police. They can actually just manage the road, just make sure everybody who's drinking or whatever get home safe. I'm, I'm going to put that out there. I don't want to put no bad information. I'm just saying, really, for as the people out there, it's a family event. Now, my last, uh, well, it really ain't a question, but I'm going to just let you speak to the people about what you're up to now and the things that you have going on, kind of speaking on what you were talking about for us. The uh recruiting the HBCUs and where you're working at currently. Yeah, so uh, currently um, I am working at the Home Depot uh, corporate office um, in finance IT. I am uh, in the I guess in the professional world I am a, a lead engineer, a lead software engineer. But at Home Depot we call it a staff software engineer. I have uh, five to six software engineers, senior and uh, junior level that are, uh, they basically report to me um, on my team. Um, Also, I've been doing this uh, software engineering thing for almost over seven years, six years with Home Depot, 
uh, a year and a half uh, as a contractor. So in total, I have a what seven and a half years of experience doing this. So I'm up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, doing my thing. Um, like Mike Fed just touched on, um, since I got to Home Depot and since going to HBCU in general, I'm um, like it's no secret I'm pro I'm pro black. You know, I'm all about my people. Um, trying to get things done, even in my community in Quincy, stuff like that. Um, at Home Depot, once I got in there, I was, you know, seeing the culture, seeing how everything was being done and how they recruit from Georgia Techs and all these other PWIs. I'm like, man, why they don't recruit? You know, they don't have, you know, these different um, career fairs at HBCUs. They may go to some, you know, if you go to Florida State, some people from family you may can go to Florida State. And if you're close to a PWI, as HBCU, you may can be allowed to go to these uh, career fairs to be recruited in your uh, fields. So I was like, man, you know, let me talk to Home Depot. Let me talk to my senior managers, my directors, my senior directors, the VPs, you know, showing the talent that we have. So I slowed, I quickly rose within, like, within the ranks of Home Depot. Uh, since I got there, like, my light kind of shined on them and my personality kind of shone. You know, I kind of, I dress up Monday through uh, Wednesday, shirt and tie, uh, I'm in the suit on Monday, even though we don't have a dress code, you just have to wear a collar shirt and some jeans or slacks, you know, up to Auntie because that's the HBCU thing. You know, every Wednesday we had a suit, uh, shirt and tie, or suit day at HBCU where everybody at the school had to wear like, you know, shirt and tie for professional. It was a professional day. So I kind of carried that over to my professional uh, career at Home Depot. So I kind of stood out in that light and just the projects and the impact that I've had on the projects, uh, because uh, most of my projects are with uh, finance and supply chain. So supply chain, all that stuff that comes into finance, um, I, my systems kind of uh, take care of that. Um, so I kind of like, met with the different people uh, at Home Depot to basically get this uh, pipeline from HBCUs to Home Depot created. Um, we finally implemented it um, through the uh, pandemic, of all things. Um there was uh, when all the stuff was going on, you know, the social injustices, uh, Home Depot leadership quickly jumped on it. Uh, they heard they got wind of the programs that me and a couple of people, Christy and the rest of uh, some uh, more HBCU uh, graduates uh, was trying to create at Home Depot. Uh, they kind of, you know, we had a whole corporate uh, meeting uh, where our CEO was basically, you know, talking about all these social injustices and had a, plant, a panel, and act, you know, open question panel. You know what I'm saying? Like to ask these hard questions, you know, in front of thousands of people that work at Home Depot, you know, virtually. So, you know, I respect Home Depot for all the stuff that they do, how they get out in the community and help. Even with the, uh, they do the HBCU bills where Home Depot will have HBCUs go out and vote and retool your school um, by Home Depot. They'll basically go out and rebuild your school if you, you know, you can vote many times you want. Uh, they do it every year. Uh, twice a year, uh, they call it retool your school. Um, but you know, we felt that it was uh, paramount that we also extended these careers, business wise or you know, corporate wise, uh, uh, for IT to get these HBCUs on board. So uh, the leadership ended up implementing the plan to go out and have these virtual career career fairs and have people that went to HBCUs head them up and actually lead the charge at their uh, their HBCUs and how do you career fairs and interview these kids and have the internship. So now we have that program in play. And I have a, a, um, a Bethune-Cookman, one of my mentees, 
um, a part of the internship now, and he starts in May. Um, but even now, I still go down to uh, Bethune-Cookman every year for the science symposium. I sit on the uh, scientific advisory board uh, to get uh, our school's accreditation for engineering and uh, our science programs down at the school. So I actually sit on that board with our directors, with our uh, our different admins and stuff like that to make sure that home, uh, that Bethune-Cookman is always in whole. And also showing my face, you know, interacting with the students, giving them my experience as a football player, track athlete down there, and an engineering student at that school and getting them, the, you know, the different resources, you know, meeting with the professors that's like, hey, this is what they're teaching in the profession. Uh, this is what we're looking for as a professional, you know, to kind of retool these kids to have them ready because we don't have the labs and the, you know, the infrastructure that these, you know, Georgia Techs and these other PWIs have. So getting the funding from different uh, people like uh, NASA and other pharmaceutical companies to buy into our uh, our small school down at Cookman is speaks volumes and stuff like that. So my work is never done. Um, my vision, my complete vision is to uh, uh, work with different uh, people and Gaston County or Tallahassee to bring in uh, basically like a engineering school, uh, essentially, uh, not even engineering, just computer science, science in general, IT, uh, to engage the students in Gaston County uh, from ages uh, five through 19 as an after school program to come out and learn how to write applications to code, to learn these IT skills uh, that you can actually use and not have to go to college and you can get a job coming out of high school right now making eighty thousand dollars you know from coming from quincy you making eighty thousand dollars coming straight out of high school that's you know that's crazy you know it's an 18 year old 19 year old making that kind of money with these kind of skills you know just engaging with these young folks you know that has the ipads and the iphones in their face every day to engage them like hey do you ever wonder why you know and how to be build these things so working with uh, my classmates like Betty McKinnon allowed me to come speak to her classes and stuff like that at Tallahassee, even in Quincy when she teaches there uh, to expose them to these things. But that's my ultimate vision to get this engineering thing or this uh, IT thing going in Quincy where, you know, coming out of school, high school, these kids have working resumes of applications that they actually built using these different technologies um, to have working resumes to get jobs. So, to bring jobs in the area and, you know, you can work virtually and stuff like that where they can spend their money locally um, to keep the money in the black uh, community. So I have a, you know, a big vision. Uh, It's a lot of work, but that's what I have going on. You know, it's a lot, but, you know, I have a lot of people supporting the cause. Um, So, yeah, that's what I got. Philip, man, I'm so proud of you, man. I gotta tighten up and make sure I start doing for the uh for the cube and the, the whole gas account, man. man. I, I I'm so doing it, man. I'm so proud of you, man. I'm so proud of <clears throat> everything you just talked about. And 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 people, if you got somebody who's playing football, tell them listen to this podcast. If you got somebody thinking about going to an HBCU, Pat, do me a favor. Pass this on. Tell them about the podcast. If you know somebody from Quincy or Gaston County, tell them about the podcast. If you know somebody who in the fam, you, I know that's the other side. 
but tell them about the podcast. And if you know any wildcat in the nation or in the in the in the world, let them know about this podcast episode because Philip Kirkland just represented, baby. And I'm telling, I'm gonna listen to it probably two or three more times. So <laughs> I'm gonna tell y'all, man, y'all gotta actually. Listen all the way through when you when you have your people pass it on, tell them, hey, listen all the way through. Cause this was very inspirational, motivational, and educational. And this was something that any young player need to hear from just not looking at the game of football and just not thinking about the PWI. I know Alabama on the TV, got a helmet and shine, and you you know you're big timer, but it ain't all about that, fella. It's different opportunities and different options ahead of you. You just have to go and seek it and take that opportunity and use it to the max. Now, I just want to give a shout out to Philip Kirkland again. He was number 82 at um Bethune Cookman. He played at East Gaston. He played at Shanks. He's he a Quincy, Florida representative. Shiloh, stand up. And I want to give a shout out no, to, to his family. I'm going to give out. Shout out to to um his mom, his dad. His dad was a true pillar in the community, as they say. When I say a pillar in the community, he has been there. I seen him out there on the field coaching, taking people home, doing this, coming out to practices, doing different things. A guy who really loved the game of football, I'm telling y'all. And... You can know he out there on the field because he got a deep, loud voice. You can hear him. He like a, he like a lion out there. You know, so yep. I got to say a shout-out to all of them. And even to his brother Todd. That was my classmate to his brother Todd. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just I got to give a shout-out to him because, you know, he really doing big things out here and inspiring a lot of kids to do better. So I'm going to leave y'all how I always leave y'all. Keep your head up and not down. I ask you a fall to the ground. It's the Life and Football Podcast. Catch you next time. This is a new day to live your life. This is a new day to try to get right. This is a new day to get on track. Yeah, that's life and football. This is a new day to live your life. This is a new day to try to get right. This is a new day to get on track. Yeah, that's life and football. It's life and football. We are life and football.